Welcome to the Business of Design podcast. I'm Cheryl Horn, Director of Operations for Business of Design. A lot has changed at Business of Design since this episode originally aired. For the latest information and rates on events and membership at Business of Design, head to businessofdesign.com. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Episode 71, Business of Design. I'm Kimberly Selden, and I'm your host, and we have a great show for you. I love bringing you experts you may not have met before. Uh, this guy, Steve Smith, is has become a really good friend of mine. He is part of the Electrical Safety Authority of Ontario. So in the province of Ontario, it's the governing body that makes sure we're all handling power safely. In particular, they want to make sure that the electricians or in Ontario, licensed electrical contractors who enter enter our clients' homes, know what they're doing, and have the proper training to do the job well. That's important. I'm bringing lots of different trades into my clients' homes, or I'm working with trades they already have on hand. I want to make sure, as the design professional, I know what's required, whether it's electrical or plumbing or painting or decorating, right? So many things to think about. So you're going to love Steve. Let me tell you a little about him. Steve Smith is the general manager of the Electrical Safety Authority's Central Region. He manages 55 electrical inspectors and is responsible for overseeing the delivery of ESA's regulatory duties within Central Ontario. And that includes monitoring and enforcing compliance with the Ontario Electrical Safety Code. Wherever you live, trust me, you will have an electrical safety code. Steve has worked with ESA, formerly a department of the Ontario Hydro, for 32 years. He's held so many roles during that time, inspector, senior inspector, technical advisor, project manager, director of appeals. He's also on the board of directors of the International Association of Electrical Inspectors. And prior to that, Steve was a master electrician specializing in fire alarms, as well as an instructor and training coordinator at the Joint Apprenticeship Council. So he knows everything there is to know about electricity and how to use it safely. I've had the privilege of working with the Electrical Safety Authority, or ESA, over the last three years, and I've joined them to help with their mission, which is to enhance public electrical safety. As an administrative authority acting on behalf of the Government of Ontario, ESA is responsible for administering specific regulations related to the Ontario Electrical Safety Code, the licensing of electrical contractors and master electricians, electricity distribution system safety, and electrical product safety. All of these things matter a great deal to us as we're working on behalf of clients. If you want more information on the Electrical Safety Authority, it can be found at esasafe.com. And if you happen to live somewhere other than Ontario, you may just want to make sure you're familiar with your governing body. More importantly, make sure your licensed electrical contractor is familiar and associated with that governing body. We call this episode Power Your Reno because that was the name of a campaign I did with ESA. And by the way, a really helpful website, poweryourlife.ca. There is advice there from home experts, the latest trends and innovations. And there are also four questions you should be asking your licensed electrical contractor, including what is your license number? Will you provide a written cost estimate? 
including electrical permit fees. Can you provide me with three references? And will you provide a certificate of inspection upon completion? Don't worry if you're driving. As usual, go to businessofdesign.com and we'll have links to all of these sites as well as that information for you to grab after you have a listen. During my conversation with Steve, he said a line I just have to remember, and that is silence leads to sorrow. He refers to the fact that if you don't have conversations with your trades in advance, something's going to go wrong. But I think this also could apply to client conversations, not having those tough conversations with clients when you know you should does lead to more problems later. I have learned that the hard way for sure. And not speaking to my trades ahead of a presentation can also cause me a great deal of trouble. So for instance, let's say I'm proposing a new state-of-the-art refrigerator. If I take time to consult with my licensed electrical contractor first, he is going to remind me that the client's electrical panel may not have the power it needs to run this bad boy. Then I can do one of two things. I can get my electrician to quote on an upgraded electrical panel for the client, if that's a possibility, or I can do something even simpler. I can add a note to the description of the refrigerator that says something like this. Note, the power requirements for this appliance are substantial. There may be additional electrical work required to provide sufficient power. That note does two things. Number one, it makes me look smart, which I love, and I could use all the help I can get, quite frankly. And number two, it prepares the client for the fact that if they decide to go with this big refrigerator, there are likely going to be other costs associated with installing it. So I've given myself that accordion that I talk about all the time, that accordion of space where I can go back to the client and say, as we suspected, we now need to add further electrical work to the project. Something else that I was reminded of during the conversation is the fact that when we have a renovation going on and all the walls are opened up, we love to do a video of every single room and every single wall. Very often, we don't remember that there's an important stack on this particular wall. And so down the road, if the client wants to add something, we have to do some exploring and we have to open up a wall. When we do that video, we know what's behind every wall. And again, it helps us look like we're ahead of the game. It makes me feel smart. It makes me feel confident. Welcome to the Business of Design podcast with Kimberly Selden. Business of Design is the coaching community for independent designers like you. We know it takes more than hard work and talent to successfully run a professional design firm. There are proven business strategies that can solve your immediate business challenges and transform your life. Don't try to do this alone. Join today and you'll have access to more than 100 video courses plus Kimberly Selden as your mentor and guide. Unlike traditional coaching, which can take years to produce tangible results, BOD is a fast track to immediate results for independent interior designers, decorators, architects, stagers, and landscapers just like you. I've got the fabulous Cheryl Horn standing by. Hey, Cheryl, what's happening at your end? 
Well, it's a it's a busy busier summer than I expected, but we have our next group coaching call tomorrow, uh, Tuesday, July thirty first, from one to two p.m. EST. Uh, so if you've got if you haven't registered, make sure you head over to the website and sign up for that. Um, but as well, I know so many people are on holidays, so make sure you're, if you're unable to attend that you're submitting those questions in advance because we do our best to make sure that we get all those questions answered. Um, but as well, even if you're not able to attend, I just want to remind people to register anyway, so that you get a copy of that recording afterwards. Right. That happens sort of automatically. If you register, even though you know you can't attend, you can at least listen into the coaching later at your leisure. So that's a great, another good aspect of membership. Yeah, and we really do um, try and get through all of the questions, and a lot of times we overlap. So people attending have already asked the questions that I had on my list to ask for other members. So uh, whatever you're going through, other members are going through it as well. So um, it's a you know it is really added value to your membership to get in on these group coaching calls. So again, it's uh, Tuesday, July 31st, 1 to 2 p.m. EST. Make sure you head over to businessofdesign.com to register. Yes, come as you are. And then come as you are also to Texas. We are finally getting to Texas. When is that happening? Uh, that's coming up in October on the 25th and 26th. You can check out the details on our website, but we are doing Austin, Houston, and Dallas. We're sending you all over the place in two days to make sure we get to all of our members in that area. So you can register online to make sure you can join us for that. Texas is such a big state that just doesn't even cover the half of it, but at least it's a good start and we're excited about it. So come on out if you're in the Texas area. Would love to meet you. I think you said it's a free event, Cheryl, right? It's a free event. So yeah, it's a business of design meetup. We uh, recently did them in uh, LA and New York. So we're trying to hit more cities and, uh, meet more of our members in person, which is great. And also um, one of the bonuses that's been coming off of these events is that designers are finally meeting other local designers, designers in their area. Um, they're all you know, using business of design. So they, they've got the same systems, same processes in their business, and they're creating their own little um, networks and support groups in their local area, which is great. Oh my um, gosh, yeah, so again, so good. It, yeah, so again, it's coming up in October 25th, 26th, and you can head over to businessofdesign.com for the details. Awesome, Cheryl. Thank you so much. I hope you're getting a little bit of down. But what a nice time yeah. in your life, for sure. <laughs> Have a great week. Okay, talk to you soon. Before you meet Steve, I also want to assure you that we're going to talk about some of the things that we do as interior design professionals in terms of specifying light fixtures. So I'm going to ask Steve about halogens versus incandescence versus LEDs, and we're going to talk to him a little bit about some of the challenges with the new industrial strength or commercial appliances our clients are asking us for. So... There's lots here for everyone. I'm glad you're here. Hey, Steve, it's great talking to you this way. Thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure. I love working with you, Kimberly. Okay, now, I think we're pretty smart people listening to this podcast, and most people are thinking, I know better than hiring some stranger off the street when it comes to doing electrical work. But do we always know 
when someone has a card that says electrician that they are qualified to do the job at hand? Well, it's more to it than just being an electrician. In our jurisdiction, you're required to be a licensed electrical contractor, which um, ensures a number of things, Kimberly. It ensures that they have uh, you know, adequate liability insurance, that they, they hire the competent electricians to do the work, and they take out permits for everything they do, which means it's inspected, and that gives your customers a higher degree of you know, reliability on the end product. So we have to be aware that just because someone says they're an electrician, they may not be, in fact, compliant with the regulatory laws where you live, right? Yeah, absolutely. So every authority having jurisdiction in different areas may have some different requirements, but they're pretty consistent. And those are usually put in place to protect the consumer and protect the general contractor as well. I mean, you you have to hire the appropriate people to protect your business because if something goes horribly wrong, there's probably going to be some litigation involved and they'll go after you for not knowing better. Right. And that can be the best case scenario when you're talking about a live power source, right? I mean, someone can also get hurt. So I know for the province of Ontario, for example, I can go to esasafe.com to find out if the person who is presenting himself or herself as a licensed electrical contractor is actually qualified by the province authority, right? But if I, if I don't live in, this, in the province of Ontario, you need to find out who, what your source is locally, yeah, so every uh, territory, state, province will have authorities having jurisdiction who take care of the electrical inspection end of it, and they'll be able to tell you what the qualification requirements are and the legal requirements are for that authority. One of the things that I was, um, I guess, somewhat surprised to learn is that the permit process is actually another layer that protects me in terms of insurance and uh, knowledge of the team that's working on behalf of my project, right? Yeah, absolutely. So every interaction we have with an electrical contractor is uh, monitored and maintained. And depending upon their performance standards, we increase or decrease the amount of inspections we have with them. We try not to change, chase every movement that a really good contractor does because they've proven themselves. On the other side of the coin, the ones that need some special attention, we pay special attention to. So their performance is monitored. So what that tells me as the design professional is I never want to be in a situation where I'm skipping the permit process because that's just another layer of protection. Yeah, and you know we tell homeowners or designers that we're there to represent them. We don't expect you to have the technical expertise that's required in this trade because it's very complicated. So, you know, the regulatory authority, as in the electrical safety authority, we kind of represent your best interest and the and consumers' best interest in making sure that the people are properly qualified and that the installation was done and meets the current standards. Okay. The the only time I've come across a situation where the clients didn't want to get a permit, it seems like it was driven by the fact the client thought it would A, save time, and B, save money. Two things that cannot take precedent over safety. Well, you could argue both of them, you know, does it save time? Well, I can tell you I've been involved in some pretty nasty installations where we went in and the person just did not have the ability to do the do the job properly. So you end up having to, you know, open up walls and making changes and the cost just goes through the roof. And that's a pretty sad day. You know, one of my biggest fears as a, when I was an inspector in the field was walking into these installations and, you know, telling them, you know, I'm really, really sorry here, but we've got to do this differently. And 
you know, most amateurs um, don't really have a good understanding of the reason that we have these codes and standards. You know, these codes and standards are built in because of safety, but also for performance. You know, when you look at simple devices such as, uh, you know, a blender, it has a, a one meter or a three foot cord on the end of it. So therefore, it's, you know, when it's on a counter, you need to have a receptacle within the distance of that blender's cord. Otherwise, you'll be running extension cords or you'll be using them where it isn't convenient. So there's a lot of good logic in these rules and you have to know them. Well, okay, so I'm glad you're bringing up the fact that we have to know them. The truth is, though, in my profession as a a design professional, I don't have to know those rules, but I do have to know that I'm hiring the right person who is trained and does know those rules, right? And that, by the way, if you're listening, that applies to electricity, it applies to plumbing, it it applies to painting, pretty much everything, right? Yeah, and, you know, the sad reality on some of these rules is they, you know, a lot of times they end up in a code book of some sort, whether it's plumbing or electrical, as a result of some misadventure. You know, something goes wrong and they say, well, listen, we really should have a rule around that for someone that hasn't been made aware of the misadventure so it doesn't happen again. So it really is a a book of knowledge, isn't it? It is, right. Okay, good. So, So bottom line, it doesn't really matter which trade you're hiring or which trade you're working with on behalf of your client. You do want to make sure that trade has the licensing and qualifications they need in order to deliver the project safely. That's really important for liability. Yeah, and combine that with, you know, our requirement is they have to have liability insurance, which would protect you as the uh, designer because, you know, in this day and age of litigation, if something goes wrong, everyone's going to be brought in and made accountable. So, you know, it's important that the people you hire have the proper insurance as well. Yes, it is. And one of the things that really, really stunned me was learning that as an interior design professional, if I'm working on a job site and the trades don't have the proper insurance, my insurance can also leave me hanging. They won't take care of me. And the same thing is true for your clients. If you bring trades into your client's home or if they bring trades into their home who don't have the proper insurance, their own insurance may be null and void. So this is something really important for designers to know and to educate ourselves on. You know, Kimberly, you and I have talked uh, many times, and one of the things I keep reinforcing is the fact that, you know, this is a a difficult trade to learn. It's a five-year apprenticeship in most jurisdictions, and the reason for that is because you're dealing with an energy source here, and energy is a great thing when it's kept in its place, but if it gets outside of it, it can have tragic consequences. So we want to make sure that uh, the people get to use this beautifully designed new renovation for the you know, reason that it was intended and not have to worry that the person that installed it didn't meet all the codes and standards and there's something ticking behind the walls there. Right, right. We advise the interior designers who listen to Business of Design to really do all of the heavy lifting and planning up front for so many reasons. But when it comes to anything that's breaking into a wall or anything that would be very expensive to fix after the fact, it becomes even more important to do your planning up front. So for us, that means drawings up front. It means consultation with the trades uh, that we're going to be working with. It means having the specification sheets for appliances and light fixtures in our hand, ready to go as we're collaborating with those trades. What kind of stuff have you seen, Steve, where a little advanced planning would have changed everything? 
Well, it's always a good idea to have a plan because then you can bring forward, you know, the concerns. And let's say you're traveling down a path as a designer and all of a sudden the electrical contractor says, yes, but. So then you need to change direction slightly. And it's so important that you're communicating because they have the electrical expertise to say, yes, you can do that, but here's a consideration. So in a lot of cases, you know, proper planning means no surprises or less surprises. It also usually means substantially less cost. Because to go at the 11th hour and start making some significant electrical changes because, you know, the, the range, you know, you want a, you know, a double oven range all of a sudden as opposed to a single oven. There's some huge characteristics that have to happen behind the walls there to make that happen that if you didn't plan for up front are going to be a bit of a nightmare and cost a lot of money to correct near the end of the job. Mm -hmm. Like we get asked often for a coffee bar and I know we will very often put the coffee machine and the coffee maker and the kettle and all of those things behind cabinet doors. And that requires very specific treatment when it comes to electricity. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, a lot of people don't realize that if you have an appliance garage, as they're called, um, there is a very big concern about somebody plugging into that appliance garage, putting away the product and leaving it energized. It's a heating element in a confined space, and that's not a good thing. So there is a requirement in most jurisdictions to put in a safety switch on there so that when the door is closed on that garage, it turns off the receptacle. And it's those little nuances that you may not be aware of that could lead to tragedy if you don't address. So it's really important you have that dialogue with the electrical contractor and the designer to make sure that every Everybody's on the same page and you can anticipate some of these things. You know, this whole project should be the most exciting thing that we've ever done. It should be turning those dreams into reality. And we want to make sure that it doesn't turn into a nightmare with, you know, things going wrong. So it's all about planning. Absolutely. Great advice. One of the things um, that we often will discuss with our licensed electrical contractor is the placement of receptacles. I know you mentioned that a blender will have a three-foot cord, and therefore receptacles by code are three feet across. And I have seen situations where the designer said, we really don't want one there in the middle of the backsplash, but sometimes we don't have a choice. That's the code, right? So you know one of my pet peeves is you spend a ton of money on a beautiful backsplash, let's say, in the kitchen. It's a dark green marble, and it costs a fortune. And then you throw in these white receptacles or outlet covers that are bright white. It ruins everything. With a little advanced planning, a conversation with a licensed licensed electrical contractor, you would know how many receptacles you're going to need to have, and then you would be able to order specialty colors that will blend more seamlessly with the beautiful tile your clients have paid for. Yeah, and a couple of things to keep in mind, too, that, um, you know, designers are, and, you know, the purpose they serve is to create that breathtaking, customized kitchen that the homeowner wants. But there is another life after that, and that's when the house gets sold. So if you sell the house somewhere down the road, five, 10 years, whatever, and that does not meet the code, then you're going to have a problem trying to sell it. So you may not want that receptacle there, but if it's required by code, it needs to go there. 
So let's look at the ramifications of that. So this is where the electrical contractor can work with the designer and saying, you know, there is a requirement for ground fault circuit interrupter receptacles. They're big and they're ugly and they got buttons on them and they don't come in the fancy green that the designer wants. And But there is another way around it. And that's the way the contractor can help you by moving the ground fault protection down to the panel board you can accomplish and still protect the circuit for, you know, the prevention of, you know, water and shock issues and still get that beautiful designer green receptacle to match that designer green backboard. Okay, so I'm not going to know any of that if I don't have a meaningful conversation where I work with my trade and tell them my concerns, right? So it, it doesn't matter what that trade is, right? If I, if I say, here's my concern, that trade should be able to say, here are a couple of things that might help you out. Yeah, so silence leads to sorrow, like the old song says. So <laughs> we really need to talk about this stuff and do the planning right up front because I always joke that it's easier to you know fix a plan with a receptacle than it is with a hammer. So you need to have those conversations right up front. And if you're going to put a high-end fridge in there, it has different characteristics than a low-end fridge. In fact, the placement of the receptacle is going to be different. So you need to have those kind of plans laid out and have this discussion long before the construction starts to try to eliminate things. And we all know there's a, a thing called as-built because as the job progresses, things change. But with a proper uh, amount of um, sort of the overall concept they're looking for, the electrician uh, through the licensed electrical contractor can anticipate some of those needs and have some flexibility built into it. I'm so glad you mentioned the fridge. Did this change? It seemed to me in the old days, the fridge just got plugged in like anything. And now it seems like there's a very specific place the receptacle needs to go for s different refrigerators. Is that Am I crazy or has that happened? Well, you're not crazy, but yes, it has happened. So, you know, as time evolves and the electrical consumption increases because of more toys, I mean, look at fridges nowadays. My grandmother told me how the Iceman used to deliver ice every day and they threw it in the box. So, you know, as these things progress and we see fancier gadgets, now you can get computers on the front of the TV or a TV on the front of the refrigerator, rather. Right. So there's lots more enhancements, but the high-end fridges draw a lot more power, and they're also a lot larger. And if you don't put the receptacle in the right spot, you won't be able to push the fridge all the way to the back, and it'll stick out. So we need to know those um, characteristics of what you're buying and anticipate some of those special requirements. So I have to share the specification sheets for every single appliance with my licensed electrical contractor. That's really important. Also with the person who makes the cabinets, also with my plumber. Lots of people need those specification sheets. Uh, I barely look at them, but I know that my trades need, need to look at them. So that's important. And the other thing we're getting requests for now, Steve, are these commercial type appliances, specifically dishwashers that wash the dishes in nine minutes because that's what restaurants use. I was surprised to find out that they have a, a very big power draw and sometimes my clients don't have enough energy at their main electrical board am I even saying this right it seems like they don't have enough power yeah. even in their whole house to do it so it means another board gets added what what happens then well, you're absolutely right. So there's a compromise between the amount of energy it uses and time. So in a quick rule of thumb, if you want something done quick, it takes more energy. So the same thing with the dishwasher. You know, these things can accomplish some tremendous tasks, but in order to do it in a shorter period of time, they'll draw more power. 
the, the other thing that I think to think about too is you get into some of this high end stuff and you know, there's a temptation to do some internet shopping or import it over from Europe or wherever. You have to be careful if it doesn't have the approvals marking on it, it may not be safe for using on the system you're using it on. So be careful about the, you know, the internet purchases and the, the offshore purchases. Just anticipate that there may be some alterations that have to happen before you can properly use them. Do you mean if uh, my clients are looking online and decide they want to make a purchase of something potentially that could not have the proper wiring for the state or the province that I live in? Absolutely. So there are some quirky differences between uh, even how power is used. And I'll show one that you probably are aware of. If you were to go over to to Europe, for example, they run off a different voltage than they do here. So sometimes people will buy things from, you know, for, to help match their the the um, Italian flavor of the design, and they'll start importing light fixtures, et cetera, and they won't be compatible with the system here. And that's on an extreme case. But even you know the way we um, we design standards, there's slight differences between jurisdictions because of their experience and their requirements. So you have to be really careful that the product you're importing has the proper approvals, because if you do ultimately have a failure, there could be an insurance issue with the fact that it was unapproved equipment. Right. Okay. That that makes me feel like I just want to rely on those suppliers I know are compliant where I live and not go down the road of internet shopping, which is a whole murky thing. Might be fine for an end table, but probably not a good idea for a light fixture. Well, light fixtures are interesting because they not only are beautiful to look at, but in a lot of cases they produce a lot of heat. So unless they've been tested you know, for minimum clearance standards and are properly marked how far they need to be away from cabinet doors, et cetera, you'll have no idea. And so therefore you're installing a product that hasn't been tested and you're at the reliance of whoever manufactured it. And then a lot of cases that's unknown. And it's pretty hard to narrow these people down when they're behind a web page somewhere. Right, right. That seems like a fool's errand for sure. Okay, you mentioned heat. I know sometimes I'll go to my licensed electrical contractor and I've got a drawing. Let's let's stick with the kitchen because there's a lot of power in a kitchen. I've got a drawing and I've got my reflected ceiling plan and I've got so many pot lights. And my, my LEC will make a suggestion about moving the pot lights in some cases because the heat that's going to be uh, emanating from those lights is going to be too strong that close to a cabinet. So another reason why the planning up front and then a collaboration with your trades can save, you know, thousands of dollars, lots of time and, and really heartache, right? Yeah, absolutely. So here's the other thing to consider. Although you may have designed, um, you know, a beautiful pot light that uses low energy LEDs in it, and so they aren't as big a concern from a, you know, combustible material point of view. If you have those installed and the cabinets go right tight to the ceiling, for example, and the doors go right underneath those lights, although with the LEDs, the fire hazard's a little bit less than normal, what's to say that the homeowner somewhere down the road doesn't... Um, decide to go with a more brilliant halogen type light because they're a little more crisper than the LEDs. Now all of a sudden you've entered into a new realm where those lights give off a tremendous amount of heat. And we've certainly seen in our jurisdiction where some of these pot lights will actually catch the top of the cabinets and burn them pretty good to the point where they're ready to ignite. So you really have yeah. to coordinate you know, the trades, the supplies, the materials and all that with the electrical. 
I've totally seen that before. I always think that it must be a situation where the lights are existing and the homeowner comes in and adds upper cabinets or something and doesn't bother to move the lighting at that point. So, um, but definitely I've seen where the top of the cabinet, the door, the upper part of the door of a cabinet is burned or scorched. I think, oh my gosh, that that seems sort of terrifying to me. I want to go back to this idea of the um, special appliances because we're now getting uh, customers asking us to put televisions in the bathroom and to put mini refrigerators in the bathroom. Sometimes special face creams and serums and potions need to be refrigerated. Some people like to keep their vitamins in the bathroom. So bathrooms and kitchens are being asked to do a lot more. And that's a conversation also that you want to have well up front before your clients get excited about a TV over the bathtub and you find out you can't do it. Yeah, we certainly are seeing uh, some creative ideas. I've seen television sets behind the mirror. So you go in some of the high-end hotels in downtown Toronto, for example, and they've got televisions behind the mirrors where, you know, you can be putting on your makeup or shaving your face or whatever, and you can watch TV right in the mirror. So those are happening as well. We also see um, a, a big increase in towel warmers where you can, you know, have the towel nice and warm when you go out there or infrared heating on the ceiling, which is almost mm -hmm. like that french fry cooker you see in the uh, fast food stores so you're seeing a lot of novelty approach to it but we got to keep in mind that the danger with electricity one of its vulnerabilities is the mixture of electricity and water so when you're in the the bathroom there's high humidity levels there's water and there's electricity and we really have to put some separation between the two so distance is your friend and we've got to start putting in special things like ground fault circuit interrupters that if something does go wrong, it trips out. You know, the other thing we see is uh, the big trend towards the in-floor heating. And right. by its nature, it is, um, you know, a great alternative to baseboard heaters and that, and it makes that cozy, warm thing. But if it's not installed properly, it can be deadly. Ew, I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> I know that I, uh, we once installed in-floor heating and then tiled it and then went to turn it on and it didn't work. So we had to rip up the tile and figure out what was wrong underneath. So now we have one of our checklists that when we're doing in-floor heating, it has to be tested before the tiler comes and puts all the tile down on top of it. Yeah, great idea. And, you know, there are safety devices in there that the average person wouldn't, you know, realize, like high temperature cutouts and, you know, some cases ground fall protection. And, you know, we've seen them where the amateurs tried to install them and, and hooked them up to the wrong voltage, for example. And if you hook them up to the wrong voltage, the amount of heat comes out of them will be double. So you got to be really, really careful. I mean, it's not a, an amateur trade. It's important to know what you're doing. I can understand wanting to do your own paint job or, um, you know, make your own drapes. But I, for the life of me, I don't understand anybody who tried to install something electrical who doesn't have the proper qualifications. That just seems like a recipe for disaster. Well, there's all kinds of things that the normal person wouldn't see. And, you know, when I moved to this side of the house, the, you know, the inspection side, I saw things that I would never have dreamt of would have happened. For example, you know, sometimes they'll screw in a baseboard and they'll screw it right through the in-floor heating because they've ran the in-floor heating over too far. And now that, you know, screw goes into the ductwork and it livens up the entire ductwork for the house. So there's all kinds of things that can go wrong that, you know, the average person wouldn't be aware of. So it's important that you know what you're doing. This is a skilled trade and it's important that it gets inspected. 
You know what? That reminds me, one of the things we do as a general practice when we are, before drywall goes up, before drywall goes up, before baseboards go up, we like to do a video of everything that's going on in every room because we have had situations in the past where somebody's saying, now, wasn't there a, a, you know, wasn't there something in the board there on the wall and nobody can remember? So we go back to those videos and take a look and say, oh, wow, there is something there. We want to be careful about that. You know, that's a fabulous idea. I did that in my house when it was being built. And uh, I went one step further. I started trying, and a lot of contractors will do this trick where they try to future-proof the house. So they may put uh, drawstrings in the walls and take a picture where they are because it's a heck of a lot easier if you have to add another circuit or put in other things in the wall to be able to know exactly where that drawstring is and where it goes and be able to put a small hole in the wall and pull the string out and you can fish wires where they were never, you know, installed originally. Or you can put in, you know, circuits into the wall that, um, you know, you may anticipate additional appliances and that. So right. I love the idea of taking the walls up to give you that look inside the wall after it's closed up. That is so smart. I guess that's something you would talk to your clients about if this was a forever home. If they're doing a big renovation and they're going to be here for a long, long time. It's another way that we can add value to the conversation with our clients. Hey, have you thought about future-proofing it? And then when they say, what does that mean? And Kim Kimberly, I can say, I have absolutely no idea, but I'm going to ask my licensed electrical <laughs> contractor and he's going to take it from here. So that's one thing that comes with age, I think, and confidence. I no longer feel like I have to have the answer. I really get that I have to know who to ask, but I don't have to know the answer. That That's a real comfort. Well, you know, the other side of it is that, you know, this technology is changing very quickly in every aspect of construction. And, you know, if you get a uh, contractor that's uh, got a lot of experience, he may be right on top of some quick changing trends. Like you just look at LED lighting, for example, when you tried to put LED pot lights or any type of pot light at one time, you had this big garbage can, if you will, put above the ceiling and it was really limited where it could go based on joists and other obstructions in the ceiling. But some of these new LEDs are only as thick as the drywall. So you can almost put them anywhere. And so the tremendous uh, changes in technology you can embrace and really creates uh, or opens up your creativity as a designer. It does. It's an age of miracles. We are putting lighting on beams now, which we were never able to do because we didn't have the thickness available for the you know, the housing, the casing or whatever that goes with the light fixture. So it's true. I promised myself I wouldn't forget to ask you to give me a primer on the difference between incandescent, incandescent halogen and LEDs. And what's the new thinking? Where are we using each one of those? And what do I need to know? So there's lots of different ways you can look at those, the three types you talked about. One of them would be evolution. You know, when the original light bulb was built many, many years ago, it would took, took a ton, tungsten wire and put it in a vacuum and put electricity across it. You know, a light bulb in the old days was 90% heat and five or 10% light. Um, so technology moved forward and they realized the color temperature. And that's a term that Perhaps the um, the designer is you know more aware of than the homeowner, but color temperature has a lot to do with how you see things. It can make you know colors of a, a nice pearl you know granite countertop pop if you have the right temperature uh, hitting it. 
So depending upon what the mood you want to create, you go into some large office buildings and you can see cool white or warm white. It puts a different mood on it. One looks more sterile than the other. One has that warm, cozy feeling. So if you're fully aware of the different technologies between, you know, halogen, which is a crisp, white, brilliant white light, which a lot of places use in, you know, jewelry stores and that to really make the diamonds pop. And you take that diamond home and put it under your fluorescent light, it just doesn't seem to have the same luster. Those uh, technologies are tremendous when it comes to the way your eye sees it. Um, my dad was an artist and he always taught me to, you know, really enjoy the beauty of something, but put it in a different context and it's different. And that's true with your designs. The other side of it is the energy consumption, which is something we like to touch on more and more. Everyone's very cognizant of how much uh, power everything uses. So there's a trade-off there between how much energy it uses, the frequency of use, and, you know, the need to have a different technology. So the good news is what we're seeing coming out in the LED technology is really starting to mimic some of the high-end lighting like halogen. Um, we're even seeing some very creative ways of getting energy there, and it's called power over Ethernet. And that, in essence, is taking somewhat of a computer cable, if you will, and sending uh, low-energy power across that that we couldn't do before because the light bulbs used to draw so much power, they needed heavy-duty wiring or heavy-duty or than uh, Ethernet. So now you're seeing these LEDs that are drawing so much less power, they're achieving the same levels of brightness, and they're starting to outweigh the incandescence, uh, you know, by tenfold. So the change in technology you have to embrace because it really, really helps out. And you combine that with things like, you know, home automation and energy management, and wow, it's just uh, really opened up the electrical field. I have had issues in the past with LEDs kind of humming. I've had a couple situations where the clients have said, there's kind of a buzz coming off this light fixture. Is that because if this is going back, you know, maybe six or seven years? Has it improved? Did we do something wrong? Uh, so yes, yes, and maybe. <laughs> so the lighting, the lighting has improved tremendously. Like at one time, when you think about the evolution of LED lighting, they couldn't really make a white LED. Everything was blue or green or red. Right. And the evolution has now seen more and more white and, and even crispier white. But here's the, one of the major dilemmas. If you take an existing circuit that has pot lights and a dimmer on it and you remove the incandescent lighting and replace it with LED chances are that dimmer cannot properly control those LEDs. It has a lot to do with, I won't get too techy with you, but the waveform that, uh, you know, the sine wave that's involved and how they, they achieve dimming. So if you were to put LED lightings on an old style dimmer, it's going to make all kinds of noise and you'll be disappointed at how little you can dim the lights. So you really need to make sure that the light system and the control system are compatible. And the other issue that happens in a lot of cases with LED the the um, dimmer itself requires a load, a fairly substantial load, to be able to to dim and control. When you start putting LED lights on, the the load is so much less that the dimmer really can't handle it. It doesn't see it as enough load, so you'll find that it won't turn off or turn down as much. So take a look at the the products and make sure they're compatible with with each other. In fact, some LED lightings in some compact fluorescents are not even dimmable. So read the package before you buy them and make sure they say, you know, for use on dimmable circuits. Okay. And again, like just have that relationship with your licensed electrical contractor. 
because you're going to learn so much. And I know my LEC is kind of a, a geek, like maybe a lot of them. He knows which light fixture should go where. So we'll say we want to do, you know, we want task light. He'll go, oh, we have to use the blah, blah, blah. And he, get, he gets all geeky and tells me this like weird number name of some thing. And I'm like, well, let's see it. Oh, yeah, that looks great. I would never know that stuff. But he seems to get super excited about which light we use where. So again, this is somebody you can rely on who's going to make you look good in front of your clients and deliver a better outcome. Well, the other thing I think the LEC can help you out with too, Kimberly, is when you go into an existing renovation, there may be the old wiring in there, but because of the changes to the codes and standards, you may not need as much, as many circuits there as you used to. A, a kitchen countertop is a good example. So they may be able to utilize the circuitry that's there and uh, reduce the cost of updating the kitchen and use those circuits for other things. So the experience that they have, you know, in doing this for years and being aware of the, the latest codes, you know, trends and standards can really help your, um, you know, your whole design move along to reality. Okay, it's time for design intervention, that golden nugget of advice you would give to design professionals listening. Well, I would think you know, my biggest advice is, you know, these the designer in my tradesman background eyes are are the magicians. They turn the dream into reality. And, you know, you've got a lot of uh, inspirational ideas that, you know, have to somehow function. I'll, I'll never forget my dad, you know, built his own cottage and wanted to have a floating kitchen because he was an artist. And I said, are you kidding me? Uh, you know, how do I get electricity up to a floating kitchen? And he says, I know you're smart. You'll figure it out. So between the two of us, his dream and concept, we had to put reality to it. And we got very creative on how to hide the power. So it's all about blending that design, that dream into reality through the, you know, the technical requirements. And when the two marry up together, it is a great day. So it's all about trying to plan and work around problems. And it's all about the relationship you build with your licensed electrical contractor, because there's a lot of great people out there that have a lot of experience. And, you know, you hook up with the right person, you build that rapport, and it will be a long lasting relationship. Oh, I love that. Now I need to go and find a client who will let me do a floating kitchen. <laughs> yeah, you got to love these artists. <laughs> I seriously want to do this now, Steve. Thank you so much for everything you're teaching us. We really appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks, Kimberly. I love working with you. Thank you for being part of the Business of Design community. If you love what we do, please show your support by subscribing to the podcast and rating our efforts. Remember, you can be a part of the podcast by sharing your comments, ideas, and questions via the BOD hotline at 416-780-9187, extension 107, or by sending an MP3 file to info at businessofdesign.com. And when you're ready to transform your business and your life, sign up for a monthly or annual membership. Together, we will achieve extraordinary results. Start today. Start today.